The famous Longfellow brothers <clears throat> were born and raised in Portland, Maine in the 1800s. Henry Wadsworth was born in 1807, and younger brother Samuel arrived in 1819. Henry became a Harvard professor of literature and one of America's greatest writers. Samuel became a Unitarian minister and a hymnist. While Henry was publishing his books, however, dark clouds were gathering over his life and over all America. In 1861, his wife tragically died when her dress, much harder to remove quickly and often made of highly flammable materials, caught fire in their home in Cambridge, Massachusetts. That same year, the Civil War broke out. Two years later, Henry's son, Charlie, age 17, ran away from home, hopped aboard a train, and joined President Lincoln's army. Charlie proved a brave and popular soldier. He saw action at the Battle of Chancellorsville in 1863, but in early June, he contracted typhoid fever and malaria and was sent home to recover. So he missed the Battle of Gettysburg. But by August, Charlie was well enough to return to the field. On November 27th, during the Battle of New Hope Church in Virginia, he was shot through the left shoulder. The bullet nicked his spine and came close to paralyzing him. He was carried into the church and later taken to Washington to recuperate. Receiving the news on December 1st, 1863, Henry immediately left for Washington. He found his son well enough to travel and they headed back to Cambridge, arriving home on December 8th. For weeks, Henry sat by his son's bedside, slowly nursing his boy back to health. On Christmas Day, December 25th, 1863, Henry gave vent to his feelings in a carol that can only be understood against the backdrop of war. Two stanzas now omitted for most hymnals speak of the cannons thundering in the south and of hatred tearing apart the hearthstones of a continent. The poet feels like dropping his head in despair, but then he hears the Christmas bells. Their triumphant pealing reminds him that God is not dead nor doth he sleep. The Sunday school children of the Unitarian Church of the Disciples in Boston first sang this carol during that year's Christmas celebration. How wonderful that such a song could emerge from the bloody clouds of the war between the states. Of course, you probably deduced by now the carol is, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. The first three verses say this, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play, and wild and sweet the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Those words that Henry wrote echo what many may very well feel in days like our own. It doesn't take long to look at the world or even our own country and see a lack of peace. How could such a peaceless reality be simultaneously true with the promise of peace that we read in Scripture. 
and sing of during this time of year. Many of us feel this keenly when we, in conversation with others, might find ourselves using words such as, I'm struggling with so much anxiety, so much stress. What we're saying is, we lack peace. Perhaps many of us in the room today can think of a time where those words were very true, and perhaps for some of us, those times are now. Circumstances are not going as we would prefer. If we would write our own story, it would have gone much differently. And so we wonder, what is this peace we sing of? And is the promise of peace really for me? Well, the answer to that question is, it is. But the better question to ask this morning is the one that we'll begin our time with. And the question is this, what must first be true of me before I can experience the peace that Jesus offers? The Bible actually tells us that there are, in fact, certain prerequisites for peace. And so we're going to dedicate our minds and attention to those prerequisites this morning. Join me in Philippians chapter 4. In Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7, it seems quite clear that what we encounter are some important things to consider on this concept of peace. And in asking this first question, we immediately get our answer. Philippians 4, verse 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Well, that seems awfully hard to do when things aren't going well. And that tends to be the part of that statement we focus on, to rejoice always. I believe the key phrase in that statement is, in the Lord. What must be first true of us is we must be in the Lord. To experience peace with God, something needed to be done. Paul says in the book of Romans, we come into this world, enemies of God opposed to the very things he loves, enemies, objects of his wrath. In other words, it would seem a wall of hostility had been erected separating us from him. But we're thankful for Jesus this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, Paul speaks on this subject to a divided people. The division between Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jewish people. In a broader spiritual sense, often the subject is those who are in Christ and those who are not. On this subject, both specific to the Jewish-Gentile division and, more broadly, to the spiritual application of those in Christ and outside of him, he says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one at that time separated from Christ 
alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Those words were true of all of us at one time. Every phrase, you and I, separated from Christ, alienated from his people, strangers to his promises, having no hope and without God. But we were not left there. In verse 13, he says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh, in his body, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God." I'm thankful for that this morning. That peace with God has been secured for us on our behalf by Christ, the only one who could do it. And that both specifically in the case where there was ethnic hostility between Jews and Gentiles, he tears that wall down. The same is true in terms of the wall of hostility that separated us all from God at one point in time. And how did he tear both down? Through his finished work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. So we can have peace with God by receiving that truth into our life. The question this morning is, am I in the Lord? Perhaps you're here and you're not sure that that's true of you. The invitation this morning is to consider receiving this truth into your life. Again, in Romans, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and that believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Anyone and everyone can be at peace with God this morning by receiving Christ as Lord and Savior in their life. That wall of hostility separating you from God will be torn down. It's available for you. And there are many in the world today, many in our lives, and this is the peace they desperately need. And the only way to it is to receive this truth in their life. And perhaps their only way to hear it might be through you. Step two, I must be gracious with others. Verse five says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. That word reasonableness, it's a bit of a loaded word, it means a lot of different things, but really also the same thing. It's seeking the interest of others above our own, being gracious with them, gentle with them, showing kindness to them, seeking ways we might serve them. The truth is, when we find ourselves in challenging circumstances, the temptation 
that oftentimes we, including myself, give into is to focus inward. What's not going right for me? What relationships aren't working out? What if my relationships aren't working out? How is my spouse not reciprocating my affections the way I would prefer? How is my boss not treating me with the respect I believe I deserve? How is my work not fulfilling me in the ways that I expected and I hoped? Inward focus. And when we do that, what we're really doing is searching within for peace and we'll never find it. Because that's not where it can be found. Instead, what's produced is called anxiety. We have a word for it. It's a very commonly used word these days. In fact, it might be one that you have found yourself using on occasion to describe yourself. It might not surprise you that uh, in my now almost 16 years working with students, Oftentimes, you know, after Bible class or youth group or chapel, whatever the circumstances are, uh, many times a year, a student will say, hey, can I get together with you sometime? And I'll say, absolutely, sure. So we schedule a time to get together. Seven times out of ten, I have them begin, and what they usually begin with is, I'm struggling with a lot of anxiety right now, Pastor Hedges. And the anxiety is real. To deny it would be foolish. It's a very real thing. A lot of people are experiencing it. And when you're there, and that anxiety is overwhelming, what you can often find yourself wondering, if not doubting, is this idea of the peace of Jesus that passes all understanding. But the antidote, or the beginning of the remedy to our anxiety is not to focus within, but to focus outside of ourselves. Looking to others. Instead of focusing on how our circumstances are going poorly, the question is, how can I improve the circumstances of other people? Instead of focusing on the relationships that aren't working out well for me, how can I be an encouragement in the relationships I have with others? Instead of wondering when people will serve me in the way that I desire, the question is, how can I be serving other people in the ways that they need? And as we begin to look outside of ourselves, peace begins to be the result. Because we're not all that good. We're pretty broken. And if we're fixated within, anxiety is the logical result. So, are we being gracious with others? Are we seeking their interests above our own? Are we, are we putting them before ourselves, even in the midst of these difficult circumstances? Number three, we must take all things to God. Verse six says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Now, this phrase is loaded also. It doesn't mean only what it seems to mean. In other words, I can again be talking with somebody, a student or adult, and I can ask them the question, have you taken this to God? And what they're hearing me ask is, 
Have you spoken to him about it? And it certainly means no less than that. And oftentimes the answer to that question is, yes, I have. But it means more. And what is meant by this statement is that what we're doing is not just talking to God about these things, but we're surrendering our will to his. We're surrendering our desire and any further attempts to control our circumstances. And saying, you know what? I'm going to acknowledge your sovereignty in my life right now. I'm not going to try to manipulate my circumstances anymore. I'm not going to try to control the outcome anymore. I'm surrendering it to you. That's what this means. So sometimes we think, well, I've prayed about it. But the real question is, have you surrendered your will to his? It also implies a question. Do I trust in the goodness of God's plan for my life? Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. So the question here in this difficult time that you're facing, the question is, do you trust in the goodness of our God and his plan for your life? This is what is meant by taking all things to God. It also has an added feature where it says we need to do this with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving, in this case, is really about remembering God's past faithfulness. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in challenging circumstances and we start to look within and we're fixating on everything that's going wrong, we, we encounter another problem. We all of a sudden have long-term memory loss. We forget the goodness and faithfulness of God from before, which is precisely what we need to be remembering now. One of the best ways to be reminded of it is to open up his word, which over and over and over again proves the faithfulness of God. Job. After losing everything and bringing all of his feelings to God and God reprimanding him lovingly, what did Job conclude? The Lord gives and the Lord takes. In either case, blessed be the name of the Lord. Joseph, who spent years as a slave and in prison, concluded what? What others meant for evil, God meant for good. One of my favorite stories in the Old Testament was about an evil queen named Athaliah who murders her grandchildren so that she can become queen and have the throne all to herself. And in doing this, convinced herself by killing her own grandchildren, ending, ended the line of David. It was an affront to God. She was essentially saying, okay, God, her son had just died. You've taken my son. I'm wiping out the line of David. Where's your Messiah now? She didn't know that one child was saved and hidden in the temple for seven years. After seven years pass, the priest, one of the one of the best characters in the entire Old Testament, in my opinion, the priest of all people, 
gets all the captains of the army together, tells them what to do, organizes all the strategy, and they decide to infiltrate the palace, overthrow and kill the queen when she would least expect it on the Sabbath. And by the way, there's, this is all in scripture, folks. While doing this, they had to arm themselves in a way that was inconspicuous. If they went to the armory on the Sabbath, the queen would know something's up. So how did they arm themselves? Once they got into the palace, there was a secret treasure trove of arms that was placed there years ago by David. They used David's own hidden weapons to overthrow the woman who attempted to end his line. And then they bring out this seven-year-old boy and they declare him king. And in that moment, the people of God remembered something that many of them had perhaps forgotten because for seven years, they heard nothing but the line of David was over. The Messiah isn't coming. God isn't faithful. He, he hasn't kept his promise. How could the Messiah come from the line of David if the line of David's over? Seven years in this doubt and struggle. And now they see this child and the priest says, this is your king. He is a surviving descendant of King David. All hail the king. They are now reminded our God is faithful. But but we'll never bring these things to mind when we most need them if we're not dedicating our time and minds to them in the first place. But this is what we can praise God for. When, when we're in that seven years of darkness like they were, we need to remember these stories and praise God for his past faithfulness and thank him for that. One of my favorite commentaries that I like to use in my study time is the Liberty Bible Commentary from 1982. The comment they make is this, we should be anxious for nothing, prayerful for everything, and thankful for anything. Anything. I'll be honest with you. I've been in challenges of my own over the past year. Events have unfolded in my life I wouldn't have dreamt of about a year and a half ago. And, and in the midst of those challenges, experiencing certain of levels of anxiety that we're talking about and failing to do some of the steps that are laid out in this passage. One of the things that has been helpful for, for God to be teaching me is to, is to realize that any good thing in my life is something I ought to be thankful for because I don't deserve any of it. All good things in our lives are the results of God's grace. Every single one. And we can so often take them for granted or, or, or live as though God owes us these things, but he doesn't. And so to pause and say, you know, thank you for these things you have given me. This is why in a lot of these conversations I have, again, particularly with students struggling with anxiety, after they share with me what's going on, and the anxiety is real, and the, 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 the blood pressure is up, right, and the, the breathing is quick. It's like, you know, my life is really falling apart right now. I mean, it's real. Oftentimes, my first question with them will be, what are you thankful for? What? Pastor Hedges. Oh, no. Like, my life is falling apart. Can you help me with this? What are you thankful for? 
well, I guess I'm thankful for my mom and dad and thankful for my house and I'm thankful that I get to come to Delaware Christian School. You know what probably happens in that moment? For the first time in weeks or even months, that person is thinking about something other than themselves. And by the end of that conversation, a glimpse of peace can be seen. Looking within won't work. You need to look up and you need to look out at the people that God has provided for you to serve. And we need to be thankful for the good things that he's given us. When we talk about peace, the same commentary defines it this way. It's the inward tranquility of soul grounded in God's presence, God's promise, and God's power. And I think that's pretty good. And if we were honest with ourselves, particularly those of us that might be struggling with a lack of peace right now, this is exactly what we want. Tranquility of soul. We're living in the midst of a world that desperately needs that. But the only place it'll be found are in the three things that follows that statement. It's all about God's presence and his promise and his power. When talking about peace, it's also important that we understand there are two kinds. There's the peace with God and the peace of God. We've actually talked about both already this morning. But just to help further clarify it, I'd like to work through this with you for a minute. The peace with God, all Christians have it. Every single one of you who are in the Lord have peace with God. It can be received without the other. You can have peace with God, but not the peace of God. It's dependent upon faith and faith alone. You can't earn it through your good works or busy schedule. It's through faith in what Jesus has done for you. And lastly, it's the state between God and the Christian. It's that wall of hostility that's been taken down because of what Christ did for you and for me. The peace of God, however, is something all Christians may have. In other words, you're permitted to have it. It's available to you should you choose it. Secondly, it cannot be received without the other. If you don't have peace with God, you'll never experience the peace of God. It's dependent upon prayer, as Philippians 4 makes very clear, and the kind of prayer it's really talking about. If we're just talking to God about these things, but not surrendering our will to his, and we're not trusting in the, his goodness towards us, and we're not remembering his past faithfulness, we're not really praying the way Philippians 4 is telling us to pray. And lastly, it's the condition within the Christian. That is the peace of God. I want to talk to Christians in the room about the peace of God today and try to get super practical here about what I think can, can hinder our peace, the peace of God in our life, if we're not careful in being very discerning towards three relationships in our life. The first is our relationship with technology. Let's be honest, it ain't healthy. For many of us, it's not healthy. Myself included, 
I'll give you an example. And you can talk to my wife later and ask her if this is really true. And she'll tell you it is. There's a company that's recently been started called Techless, T-E-C-H-L-E-S-S, Techless. They have created a phone that looks just like this one. This is an Apple iPhone. It looks just like this phone. Nice, sleek, modern, hip, whatever. Looks great. It only does basically four or five things. It'll make and receive calls and take voicemails if you happen to miss one. It'll make and receive text messages. It'll let you take pictures. It has a clock. And um, it has a map feature. So you can still get to where you're going if you need directions. That's it. By design, you can do nothing else with it. You can't jailbreak it and download a bunch of apps on it. If you don't know what jailbreak means, talk to a person who's half your age. <laughs> you can't get Facebook on there. You can't get Twitter or Instagram on there. You can't. These are the only things you can do with what's called the techless phone. I must have spent an hour reading the advertisement multiple times trying to figure out if I should do this. Something about it was appealing, and I think what it was appealing to was the better side of me. There was like something within saying, Aaron, you need this. You need to get this phone. And so I talked to my wife, and I shared with her, I said, do you, should we seriously consider this? And we started having conversations about it. What do you think happened? I started thinking, well, we have a lot of smart devices in our home that are controlled by an app on my phone. And if I get this techless phone, I won't be able to control those devices with it. So that means I'm going to have to, like, manually turn on my lamps. <laughs> Again. Uh, or get the old-fashioned timers that you plug into the wall and you set by the clock, right? Uh, what if somebody rings my ring doorbell, my video doorbell, and I won't know because I won't get a push notification on the techless phone, let alone be able to open the ring app and see the video and talk to the person? What if I miss somebody who's ringing our doorbell? You see what's happening? And what I fear is we have a word for this. Slavery. And so our conversation isn't over. What we're now trying to figure out is, are we ready to part ways with many of the things that we have become possibly enslaved to? Our relationship with technology needs to be reassessed. In his book, The Wisdom Pyramid, Brett McCracken, who's the senior editor and director of communications at the Gospel Coalition, says this, Look to Jesus for peace instead of your circumstances. Look to Jesus for affirmation instead of Instagram. Look to Jesus for truth instead of yourself. Look to Jesus for wisdom before you look anywhere else. He's right. And by the way, I've recommended before, if you still haven't read the Wisdom Pyramid, then put it on your read list for 2023. I've read through it now two or three times 
It is valuable every time. It is one of the best books I believe Christians could be reading that's been recently published. It is really illuminating regarding our relationship with technology. Parents, if you have children in or close to the middle school range or higher, this is a book your family should read and talk about together. Second is our relationship with culture. We need to be clear about something. Culture in and of itself is neither good or evil. Oftentimes when Christians talk about culture, it's with the implied assumption that culture is inherently evil. That's not true. Culture is something we make. How it's made and why it's made determines its quality. We all have been called by Christ to make and shape culture for his glory. But we all know that there is culture that is not to the glory of God. The question is, are we acting in discernment in our relationship with that culture? Culture that may not actually be good for us to be consuming. Those of you who know me well aren't going to be surprised by what I'm going to quote next. It's a book written by former pastor Dick Staub. It's called Christian Wisdom of the Jedi Masters. I am a Star Wars fan, unembarrassed, and don't, don't overdo it here. He's not claiming that Star Wars is a Christian film, but he talks about certain themes, but then he, he takes you to the real truth of God's word and what it actually says about those themes. It's one of, one of my favorite books to read through every once in a while. I think my mom gave it to me for Christmas one year. He says this, we are culturally gluttonous and spiritually anorexic uncritically devouring immense portions of a a soul-starving culture, and then we wonder why all is not well with our soul. Uncritically devouring culture. Entertainment without thinking. We have a word for that. Amusement. One of the books on my read list for next year is titled Amusing Ourselves to Death. And I, it actually got on my radar because a student of mine read it and encouraged me to read it if I hadn't already. It seems like that might be what we're doing, simply amusing ourselves. And when we encounter something that doesn't amuse us, we're out. If it requires us to think, we're out. Thirdly, we need to reevaluate our relationship with time. And if I haven't stepped on any toes yet, I'm about to. We're in a world today struggling with the concept of truth to the point that math is no longer math. You know what I mean? Like, you used to be able to say two plus two is like unequivocally, most certainly four. Not so much. Not if you don't believe it is. But I'm assuming that most of us in this room still agree. Two plus two is four. That math can still be a wonderful world where truth can be found. Right? And I'm not even a big lover of math. My wife is. But I'm going to use math when it comes to time. How many hours do you have in a week? Anyone know off the top of your head? 168. I'm going to run a math exercise with you from the perspective 
of a teenage person. You ready? 168 becomes 112 when you subtract sleep hours based on eight hours a night. When I ran through this with one of my classes, what do you, th how, what do you think they did in response to that first statement? Ha! Ah! Eight hours. I just want you to understand. I understand that. This is what's probably healthy, but our relationship with time is not healthy. And so they get less. I actually worked this math purposefully that way to prove my point, okay? Just keep that in mind. 112 becomes 72 when you subtract school hours based on eight hours a day for five days. 72 becomes 52 when you subtract extracurricular hours based on 20 hours per week. You know what some of them did then? Ha! Ah! 20 hours. I wish. You see what I'm doing? 52 becomes 32 when you subtract part-time work hours based on 20 hours per week. I have some students working more. We used to tell our kids that their full-time job was a student. But now we expect them to be, what, time and a half? Full-time students, part-time employees? Curious. 32 becomes 24 when you subtract homework hours based on eight hours a week, which translates into 60 to 90 minutes a night. You know what they did there? You're getting on. I wish an hour, hour and a half of, that's one class. 24 becomes 17 when you subtract morning preparation for the day based on one hour per day to get ready for things like school or other activities. 17 becomes 10 when you subtract evening preparation based on one hour per day to shower and prepare for bed. Exactly. <laughs> that's right. You got, you got guys in the room? I could do it in five. <laughs> That's where I get some of my time back, Pastor Hedges. That's what we're left with. Now, how about some audience participation? Ten hours. What have I not mentioned? Oh, what was that? Eating. Eating. Okay. So that's important. What else? Bible study. Go figure. That's going to require time. What else? Transportation. I mean, you got to get from one place to the other. Anything else? Prayer. What's that? That's right. Yeah. You see what I mean? This is what we've done to ourselves. And I'm here to tell you, I'm seeing it in the lives and faces of our students. They're not healthy. They're not healthy. Now, we mentioned a few things. Let me share with you many things that we have to find, to, we somehow have to cram into the 10 hours left. Transit time, playing with friends. Is that important anymore? Used to be, used to be. Eating breakfast or dinner, let alone doing either of those things with family, which always takes more time. Doing anything together as a family, like watch a movie or play a game. Household chores, serving others in the community. Exercise, recreational reading or other hobbies. 
church commitments on Sunday or throughout the week. We didn't even mention that. Did you catch it? We didn't even talk about Sunday. And when I have conversations with students, like I recently had, just within the last two weeks, some of them will tell me, Pastor Hedges, I agree. Like, I, I would love to change some things about the time commitments in my life. But guess who they say won't let them? Mom and dad. Mom and dad. And oftentimes, mom and dad have lives that look the same way. In commenting on this about a year ago, I said this, Christian parents, when we on one hand profess the value and need for daily devotion to Christ, yet on the other hand, allow or even encourage this kind of time management, how can we claim our profession to be genuine? Especially if our own lives demonstrate the same, leading to our own lack of daily devotion. All this to say, when is the last time you simply sat down with your family, added up the limited number of hours you have in a week? Have you really left time for daily devotion? Is it really a priority? Remember, our schedules reflect our priorities. We all have the same 168 hours in a week. How we use those hours is for us to decide. Talking about my students, I love it when students engage when students are leaning into the thinking required of class at the time. I had one this past week in one of my classes, and we were talking about a subject loosely connected to this. He was just connecting the dots all on his own. He jumps into discussion and he says, listen, we all have the same 24 hours in the day. The difference is how we spend those hours. We either spend them on things that matter or we spend them on things that don't. We spend them on things that are going to perish when we die or spend them on things that will have some significance in eternity. I sat down on my stool and I said, preach. I mean, let's close our textbooks. Go on. I mean, that was one that gets it. This, uh, this, is, this, this book will be hated by any of you that know you have a problem with this. It's called The Busy Christian's Guide to Busyness, written by a pastor in the United Kingdom named Tim Chester. Does a lot of good writing. And in this book, he mentions a couple things. I'm just going to bullet point it for sake of time. But when he talked about schedules, he, talks, he, he does talk about efficiently using our time. He, he gives practical advice, okay? But when he talks about schedules, he mentions a couple points. Number one, we need to think more about people, not schedules. Even as a pastor, I can't tell you how many times in my life or in talking with other pastors, we get this schedule all mapped out to the minute for our week. And when somebody interrupts that schedule, it's a crisis, it's a counseling issue, it's someone who needs prayer. If we're not careful with this principle, we'll see that as merely a disruption to our schedule, which is more important than they are. But I have found in ministry that most of my ministry is in the disruption. And it's about people, not my schedule. He said the problem with schedules is they easily become ends in, in themselves. They should be the means that enable us efficiently to use time so that we can serve other people. That's why we should schedule. 
He says, don't confuse efficiency and effectiveness. I've met some of the most efficient people in my life, but how effective is their ministry? That's a different question. Principle number two, he said, schedules are your servant, not your master. Which means they can and ought to frequently be changed when people enter the equation. Number three, you should schedule with eternity, not time, in mind. Eternity. He says the Bible tells us to number our days, not schedule our minutes. He said God created days. Mankind came along and created hours, minutes, and seconds. But are we really doing it right? He concludes this section by saying, Good time management advice has a contribution to make to this discussion, but it's the least important step. That's because, number one, what you do matters more than how much you do. Number two, how you do it matters more than how much you do. Number three, why you do it matters more than how much you do, which is why he says, you need to sort out your priorities. Your goal should be to glorify God all the time. And you need to identify the desires of your heart that make you try to do more than God actually expects of you. At the cost of not doing the things he expects you to do. What's your relationship with time really like? He concludes that section talking about arches he encountered at a church in Milan. And over one arch it said, all that pleases is but for a moment. All that troubles is but for a moment. That only is important, which is eternal. My question is, what would our families and our churches look like if more of us lived as though we believed that were true? That the most important things we could give our time to are things that will last forever. And we will gladly sacrifice the others. But think back at the math exercise. What do many of us, when we're not careful with our time, what gets pushed to the margins? It's the eternal stuff. It's time with our families. It's daily devotions. It's church attendance and fellowship. It's service in the community. What a failure in my life also. And it's something that we desperately need to reevaluate. The second question this morning is what will the peace of Jesus do for me? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is a wonderful promise. There's a lot packed in to that statement. And what it's talking about is this. If you do what Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is encouraging you to do, be in the Lord, be gracious with others, and bring everything to God, but surrender your will to his, trust in the goodness of his plan for your life, be thankful for his past faithfulness. If these are the things that we're doing, then this peace of God comes into the equation. It passes all understanding. You just have, it has to be experienced because it's impossible to fully understand. 
And the Bible says, what this will do for you is guard your hearts and minds. In other words, it's like this. It will valiantly and vigilantly protect your soul. Even when times are hard. When the arrows of life are flying, it'll be the fortress that protects you during that time. The peace of God is a wonderful gift. The best one any of us could hope to receive this Christmas. And the best one we could ever hope to give to somebody else. It can't be wrapped. But it'll be the, the thing they most need. But it's the thing many of us often keep ourselves from. By choice. And not only do we keep ourselves from it, but if we're not careful, we keep our children and our grandchildren from it by our own example. What are you willing to surrender for this peace? That's a question all of us need to grapple with and answer. So it will guard my heart and soul, my, my heart and my mind. Questions to consider as we close. Number one, again, your question might be this. Have I responded in faith to the good news of Jesus Christ? Am I in the Lord? Do I, do I have peace with God? Have I received that truth into my life? And if you're struggling with any of those kinds of questions, today is the perfect day for you to talk with somebody about those questions. The man who stood before you and led you in prayer, Bart Hughes, will be glad to be here and meet with you after this service is over and talk with you about how you can experience and realize peace with God. For others of you who have received that truth in your life, the following questions apply. Do I make efforts to be gracious with others, even during my own challenging circumstances? You know, again, another temptation we often face is when times get hard, we isolate. Which is another way of looking within for the solution. We need to step out of that isolation and into community in service of other people. Am I committing all needs and worries to God? Am I surrendering my will to his, trusting in his goodness for me, remembering and thanking him for his past faithfulness? And lastly, with whom will I be sharing the good news of Jesus so that they might also experience his peace? Again, all of us in this room will probably be encountering people over the next few weeks who need the peace of Christ. And maybe they first need peace with God, and so they need the gospel. But they could also be a friend who's a brother or sister in Christ, and you see how they live their life. You see how the eternal things are getting pushed to the margins of their family schedule. It could be for you to come alongside and have that very difficult conversation of saying, friend, are you experiencing the peace of God in your life right now? Is that how you would describe your home, your family? Can I help you walk through this journey? And I can tell you, oftentimes when I encounter people with having problem in their relation with technology or their relation with culture, those are far easier conversations to have than people I have talked to who have problems in their relationship with time. I don't know why it is, but our relationship with time seems to be something that very few people are willing to actually talk about. 
and we get very defensive about it as soon as it comes up. You'll have to push through that. I'm just being honest with you. I don't want to lead you to believe this will be an easy conversation. But if you really love the person, you'll push and hopefully help them see what's going on. I don't want to leave you hanging. This Christmas carol doesn't end with verse 3. He goes on and says, Then pealed the bells, more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. Till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolves from night to day. A voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Praise God that peace with God has been accomplished on our behalf through Jesus Christ. And praise God that he's gone further and has offered us the peace of God, which passes all understanding should we choose it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and its truth. Thank you for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the the truths we heard this morning. And God, for any word I said this morning that doesn't align with your truth, strike it from the record of everyone's memory in this room. And focus our minds and hearts on your word and its teaching and how you've used the Holy Spirit to challenge our hearts and minds this morning. And then press us forward to ask the questions that, if we're to think about it, they've needed to be asked for years. And now we're going to take the boldness to start asking them of ourselves, of our families, of each other. To have the conversations that no one's been willing to have that we're now going to step into by your grace and through the equipping of the Spirit and have them. God, move in all of our hearts and minds this morning to purpose in ourselves not to leave this room simply having heard your word, but seeking to do it. And in so doing, more fully experience your peace in our lives and bring that peace into the lives of so many others who desperately need it. May that be the ultimate accomplishment of our lives this Christmas season. Your peace more fully realized in the lives of others. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, who is our peace. Amen.